Please be seated. Many of you, of you are aware that we just started a series on how to build a church based on Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter. So let's open there in our New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In the New Testament, you'll see a series of T-books. One is 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, then 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Five T-books. That should help you find it a little. In the T-range there. You found it? 1 Timothy chapter 1. Building the church of Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at just one verse. And again, we're going to look at just one verse this morning. And I promised you last week, and I will keep to my word, we, we will pick up a little faster pace as we move on through this series of sermons. But it will carry us for about three months. Notice how I said about, right? I like to give myself a little leeway here and there, right? Beginning next week, we'll take a bigger chunk out of chapter one. But I want to give yet another introductory sermon on who this Timothy is. Uh, Last week we looked partially at Timothy. We spent most of our time looking at who the author is, that being, of course, the Apostle Paul. And I want you to see who he is, what he was like, what he said, what he's done, and why he is writing this letter. And this morning I want you to see who Timothy is and what kind of a young man was he. And yes, he was a young man. How young, we don't know. We assume he was in his mid-30s when he became pastor of a church in Ephesus. And here is our verse this morning. Chapter 1, well, let's begin with verse 1, and we'll slide over to verse 2 as well. And that's where I want to land. 1-1 reads this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week we said that Paul was the instructor teaching Timothy the apprentice. So let's take a look at this apprentice, Timothy. The name Timothy means one who honors God. And indeed he lived up to his name. Do you know what your name means My name means small or short. My parents named me very well, right? Maybe they should have named me Goliath. (laughs) Timothy certainly did live up to his name. One who honors God. And Timothy had encountered the Apostle Paul in his hometown of Lystra. Sometime during Paul's second missionary journey, he encountered, they encountered each other around the year 47 AD. It's interesting how we could put dates to events in the Bible, isn't it? But we could take a look at what was happening historically. We know when Paul did this or that, and we're able to sort of pinpoint when all these things are occurring. And Paul's second missionary journey, he had three different journeys. Paul's second missionary journey was around the year 47. And there he is in the city of Lystra. In fact, 
we can look at this encounter. It's recorded in Acts chapter 16. If you want to join with me there, Acts chapter 16, let me read to you verses 1, 2, and 3. And there we see the Apostle Paul in the Roman province of Galatia in Asia Minor in a region we now call Turkey. Does Turkey sound familiar to you? Sure it does. The Hoffmans are headed there. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul came also to Derby, that's a city, and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. So here Timothy is already a believer, right? A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, who was a Christian, but his father was a Greek. In other words, he was not a believer. He was well spoken, Timothy, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, yet another city. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, the idea here being that uh, he, he did not follow, as the son of a non-Jew, he did not follow the Jewish practice of circumcision. And now, if he was going to minister among Jewish people, there was no way anybody was going to listen to this half-Jew, half-Greek guy, kid, who did not follow the ceremonies, including circumcision. So the first thing he had to do, as a teenager, probably maybe 16, 17, 18 years old, first thing he had to do was be circumcised. In order to be acceptable to the Jewish population, he would go speak to. Yeah, that's a sacrifice. And what we see here between Timothy and Paul is that there is a mentoring relationship. Of course, Paul being the mentor and Timothy the mentoree. But it's more than just a mentor-mentoree relationship. It's also a friendship. A friendship develops between these two men. Of course, Paul being substantially older, uh, more uh, experienced, heavily educated, and then you have young Timothy. Uh, if you follow through the, all of the New Testament, what you'll discover is that Paul and Timothy worked extensively well together, and they did quite a bit of work. So when I say that Timothy is an apprentice, I don't mean that he's a newcomer. He's an apprentice in the sense that he is now the solo pastor or the lead pastor in the church in the city of Ephesus. Now, what normally happened in those early days of the church is that they would meet in people's homes. And there's only so much room in somebody's home. And so they would break up into different homes, and it was one church, but they would meet in different places, and when they could come together, they would. Eventually, they started using pagan temples as a church buildings. Now, you could see one of those temples at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They brought it one block at a time. It's beautiful. It takes up quite a bit of space. And it used to be a pagan temple. And then it was purchased and converted into a church. What's interesting is that even back then there's graffiti on stones and it says so-and-so loves so-and-so. <laughs> even back then, right? Etched in a stone of a temple. Well, it, Timothy here is now going to pastor these groups that form the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you run through the New Testament, you see that uh, Paul left 
for Athens, Greece, and Timothy stayed behind in the city of Berea along with Silas to do the work that Paul had started. Later on, Timothy joined the Apostle Paul in Athens. And then we see in Acts chapter 18 that Timothy went and caught up with Paul in the city of Corinth where he was planting a church there. And then Paul sends him ahead into the region of Macedonia, Acts chapter 19. And then Timothy and Paul return back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20 together, working together. And if you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that in Romans chapter 16, guess who's mentioned there? Timothy, my fellow worker. Second Corinthians, Paul says, I am the author along with Timothy. Same thing in the book of Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians along um, with Silas. And then in the book of Philippians, when Paul is incarcerated, guess who's with him? Not incarcerated, but ministry to him. You see, back in those days, if you were incarcerated, if somebody didn't bring you food, you did not eat. So Timothy was there working alongside of him and helping the Apostle Paul while he was incarcerated. Can you imagine going every day to feed me in jail? How many of you would? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Just no casseroles, please. All right. <laughs> Nothing cheesy. <laughs> Prayerfully, it'll never come to anything like that here in America. Timothy was there with the Apostle Paul, ministering to him. We also see Timothy in the letter to the church in Colossae, or Colossians, and in Philemon, working alongside of the Apostle Paul. In fact, Timothy served as an envoy for Paul to the city of Philippi, and to Corinth, and Thessalonica, and now he's Paul's envoy, or envoy to, to Ephesus. Now, Paul served for just over three years in planting this church in Ephesus. After three years, he moved on to the next region. Now he's in Macedonia, and he's working on planting churches there. And so he leaves Timothy behind to teach and lead this young church, the young man that he had been mentoring. Timothy now is going to replace the Apostle Paul. It's the year now around 57 A.D., Timothy has been pastoring for about five years when Paul pens this letter. And in those five years, things have gotten rather messy in that early church. And so Paul writes to Timothy to help him, to encourage him and say, Timothy, this is what you need to do. If you're going to build that church, this is what you're going to have to do. Now, I, I would imagine, and you don't see it in the writing, but I would imagine that it must have been extremely disappointing to the Apostle Paul that only five years after so much work there in Ephesus, five years later, the church is in such disarray. And poor young Timothy, he's trying to figure out, what is it that I need to do? How do I build the church of Christ? What must I say? What must I do? What must happen? What must not happen? And so Paul as his instructor, writes this letter to Timothy. Now, you'll notice here that Timothy is, if you will, the son of the Apostle Paul. It says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So, Timothy is a spiritual child of the Apostle Paul, but what we do see is that physically, 
he is the child of a believing mother and a believing grandmother named Eunice and Lois. Eunice is his mother, Lois is his grandmother, and both were, were Christians. Now, my mother's name is Eunice. Guess what her sister's name was? Lois. Her other sister? Martha. And what a Martha she was. Her brother's name? Paul of Tarsus. His other brother? Her other brother? Silas. And then one brother named Onesimus. So apparently my grandmother really took to the New Testament and threw all those names from the New Testament. Well, here we have a believing mother and a believing grandmother. It's recorded for us not in 1 Timothy, but what we saw in Acts 16, as well as in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And what we see also is that the father of Timothy was a Greek man, not a believing man. We don't know anything really about him other than that he was not a follower of Christ, at least not at this stage in the game. And some people argue that, that Eunice, Timothy's mother, must have been a really devout Jew, Jewish woman. Um, I'm not convinced. After all, she married a non-Jewish man. And her son did not follow the Jewish practice of circumcision, which is the initial Jewish rite. But what we do see here is that both Eunice and Lois are now devout Christians. Maybe they were not devout Jewish people, but they are devout followers of Jesus Christ. And, and they taught, especially Eunice, taught young Timothy the truth of Christ. They taught Timothy the love of God. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here Paul writes, and again, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter before he's martyred in jail. But as for you, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you see that even as a young boy, his mother, his grandmother, were instilling truths from the Word of God to this young man named Timothy. His mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures. They trained him in God's truth, in God's ways. And they taught him how God loved him. And they taught him how to love God back. Mom and grandma. Unfortunately, dad wasn't there. And unfortunately, that's much too common even today. But mothers, on this Mother's Day, the greatest thing you can do for any child is insist on the truth of God. You can't beat it into their hearts. You can try to beat it into their head. But you cannot force anybody to believe. But listen, you can insist on it. And you can train. And you can be an example of Christ to your children. And certainly you can persistently pray 
Moms, when do you stop being a mom? You don't. You don't. And for as long as you are a mother, you have the opportunity, you have the privilege, in fact, you have the responsibility to be one who would be instilling the word of God to your children. Not embittering them towards the scriptures, not barraging them with the scriptures, not beating it into their hearts, but insisting and teaching, guiding and leading them, but most of all, praying for your children. That's exactly what the mother of Augustine did. Augustine, who became uh, one of the great leaders of the Christian church, was a man who, by the age of 18, was about as hedonistic as he could possibly be. Uh, he was the epitome of the, the, the playboy teenager, doing whatever he wanted to do. And his mother prayed and insisted and prayed and insisted on Christ. Till finally, he, he, he is beginning to feel overwhelmed by the work of the Holy Spirit in him, knowing that what he was doing was wrong, knowing that he was not only working against his mother, but against God himself. One day, he heard his mother from the other side of the garden wall pleading and talking about her son with a friend. And together they prayed for Augustine, and he's standing on the other side of the wall hearing all this, and that's when he said, I must give my life to Christ. And he did. And that teenager's life was radically changed. He became a completely different person. And he became a happy person. Whereas before, he was not happy at all. He became a happy person. And boy, did God use Augustine. God used Augustine mightily. And it all goes back to, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit, but through a mother who prayed and modeled Christ to him. Likewise here with Timothy. So my friends, my fellow brothers and sisters, pray for one another. Pray for your children. Insist on the word of God for your home. Eunice did. Well, let's take a look at some of the challenges that this church in Ephesus faced. I mentioned earlier how disappointing it must have been for the Apostle Paul that uh, five years later the church would be in such disarray. And that's what happens in churches. It's very easy for a church to be dismantled. All it takes is one person at a time to ignore the things of Christ. And you could very easily dismantle a church. It doesn't take much time at all. That's why you see so many abandoned churches and church buildings. At one time, understand, it was full of people who loved the Lord, but one at a time decided to do otherwise. And by the third, fourth generation, it was all gone. Look at the challenges that were being faced here in the church of Ephesus. First of all, there were some false teachings occurring there. Primarily two different kinds of false teachings. And one was something called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism sounds like a very foreign way of believing, but understand this, Gnosticism has been revived here in our Western culture today. And in fact, it's doing pretty well. We just don't call it Gnosticism anymore. But what Gnosticism says is that the physical doesn't matter. All that matters is the spiritual. So really, you can do anything you want. Live as you please, because the physical doesn't matter. Does that sound familiar? I sure it does. Do and 
Live as you want. Live and let live. Don't let anybody tell you it's wrong. Because if they do, they're wrong. That was Gnosticism. You need to put aside any physical uh, ideas and, and just do as you please and, and then understand only the spiritual matters. And in fact, they, they had this notion that there were certain mysteries that people like you and I, well, we just would not understand. So we need somebody to come and enlighten us. You're not going to discover these mysteries in the scriptures. You need more enlightening. So you must come to that person. And that person would enlighten you and take you into the next spiritual realm. How many times do we hear people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? What are they saying? They're saying, really, I come up with whatever I want. I believe what I want. Nobody's going to tell me what to believe. And and in Gnosticism, they believed that Jesus Christ was not God, but he was a lesser God, but he was an enlightened God, and therefore we could go to him to get some enlightenment as well so that we can move into these higher spiritual planes. And listen, my friends, what what we see here in, in the Gnostic beliefs of the New Testament is very common and prevalent today. But they had another challenge as well. So you, you had people here on the left pulling towards a secularization of the church, but you had people on the right pulling uh, them towards a false spirituality, a false religion. And they were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were saying, hey, listen, if you want to really be a Christian, you have to go back to the Jewish law. You, you have to obey all those laws, because if you're not obeying all those Old Testament laws, you're not a good Christian. And what happened is that they became very legalistic. They looked at themselves and said, how many laws am I keeping? Am I keeping a lot of the laws? Well, then I must be a pretty good Christian because I keep the law. Judaizers. And so they had pulled from left and from the right. And this poor guy, Timothy, has to deal with both of them. They barely had the full scriptures yet. You see, for me, it's much easier because I have the full Bible. Timothy did not. It was still being written. They also had wrong teachers. People that should not be teaching were teaching. And they had unqualified leaders in the church. People who were not qualified to lead were leading. And for whatever reason, we need leaders, let's make them, even if they're unqualified, let's make them into a leader. Somebody's got to do it. And that's what they did. And then there were people there who were actually taking advantage of the social care that the church was giving. You know, today we have social security, we have welfare and so on. So the government does much of the care for our community. But in this culture, in this time, no, no, we had to help each other. And people were actually taking advantage of it. People who shouldn't be needing assistance were getting assistance. And then just crossing their arms and saying, why work? You're going to fill my bank account. You're going to fill my pockets. You're going to give me the food. And then, unfortunately, as well, there was the issue of apostasy. That is to say, the people who profess Christ today were abandoning Christ tomorrow. They were making false professions of saving faith. They said, oh, no, I believe, I believe. And for a time, they did. They appeared to be followers of Jesus Christ but given a little time, given a little pressure, what did they do? They abandoned Christ. 
John writes about these uh, people who are apostates, and he says the fact that they left us shows to us that they were never with us. They were never in Christ. But they sure did look like they were. The city of Ephesus was a very pagan city, which adds to all the challenges that Timothy is facing. However, it was a very prosperous city. It was a very sophisticated city. It was a city filled with high culture and a great amount of wealth. It was not a poor city at all. And some of its wealthiest citizens lived in these expensive condominiums called the Houses on the Slopes. <laughs> Have you ever been along the Hudson River and you see those beautiful homes, whether it's in Jersey City or wherever? And... Um, well, they're gorgeous. I was just in Burbank, California, visiting my son a few weeks ago, and I must say, it's a beautiful region, and the multi-million dollar homes on the slopes, they're like, wow. I can see why they say, I really don't need Jesus. <laughs> Look at what I have. Money can so be helpful, but money is also very dangerous. It sure is. That's another thing they faced. The people in Ephesus started becoming very greedy and they began to love money more than their Christ. And poor Timothy, he's there to now meet all these challenges and do something about it with the word of God. Now, the city of Ephesus was also a trading port city. In fact, it was a very strategic port city there in the Mediterranean. And it was made up of a population of people who really had no value for the word of God. You see, in Israel, people value the word of God to a great extent. But here in Ephesus, they're like, word of God? Are you kidding me? You want to bring that here? No, they weren't interested at all. In fact, they were known for living for their own personal pleasure and their own personal gain. Now, does that sound familiar to you? You see, there's very little difference between Ephesus and today's modern world, except for our technology and our clothing styles. It's a very similar world. Ephesus was also full of wizards and sorcerers, witches, astrologers and diviners, uh, people who would actually take the entrails of animals and put it on a table and try to tell you your fortune. Or they would be palm readers and tell you your future based on what lines you had on your hand. Uh, let me read to you from Acts chapter 19. It reads this way. And yet, after the preaching of Paul in Ephesus, the magicians publicly burned their books. Magicians, not referring to guys who pull rabbits out of hat. We're talking about sorcerers, witches, right? The magicians publicly burned their books. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, and there a church began. Three plus years later, Paul is gone, Timothy stays, and here's where we are this morning. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but tradition tells us, uh, Fox's Book of Martyr, Martyrs tells us that Timothy stayed there for 40 years as the pastor in Ephesus. And eventually he's martyred after being beaten. Two days later, um, he dies. And he was beaten simply because he was protesting a pagan feast. There was a procession coming down the street. He gets in front of it. He says, no, this is wrong. This is against the God of the scriptures. 
there was a feast of Katagogian, and they beat him. They said, get out of the way, and they beat him to the point in which he died 48 hours later. This is the young apprentice, the young pastor who is now going to be responsible for the church there in Ephesus. And Paul looks at him and says, Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. There is a sincere rebirth in this man's soul. It's very interesting to see how Paul refers to him. Uh, about 15 years earlier, they had met in Lystra. And we saw his physical lineage, Eunice, Lois. But here we see his spiritual lineage, my true child in the faith. If you go back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, this is what we read. Paul writes, that is why I sent you Timothy. And he refers to Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He writes it in a very similar way in Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 20. For I have no one like him, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Of all the people that Paul knew and worked with, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It says a lot about the young man, doesn't it? Then he goes on, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth... How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And so here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 2, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was not only Paul's friend, not only was he a co-worker and a companion, not only was Timothy a, a young man who shared the same point of view as the Apostle Paul concerning Christ and the things of God. Not only could Timothy articulate Paul's ideas as an envoy of Paul's, but Timothy was a genuine, a true, a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. And Timothy apparently was the product of Paul's preaching probably during his first missionary journey, and then Paul comes a second time, he now knows Timothy. Who knows, maybe his mother heard the gospel and told Timothy, and Timothy believes, and now in the second journey of Paul, he follows Paul into his life of ministry. We, we don't know when he came to faith. I do find it interesting, for those who like to be a little more technical there, that in the original language, which is Greek, it reads this way, my true child in faith. My true child in faith. And of course, in the English, we say, my true child in the faith. But in the Greek, there's no definite article. So, so what is Paul saying? Either he's saying Timothy's faith is genuine, saving faith, or simply that Timothy shares in the same exact faith that I share. Whatever the case, later on, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight Finish the race. Fight the fight which you made, for which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. They shared like faith. Was Paul redeemed? Absolutely. Therefore, so is, so is Timothy. They shared the same faith. 
There, there was nothing false about Timothy's profession of faith. He knew what he believed, and it was a true, sincere belief. It was not a feigned confession. Uh, it was not an emotional high. Young Timothy didn't say, whoa, look at all these people following Paul. This is going to be really exciting. I'm going to go too. Timothy didn't say, well, this is something I'll do for a season in life. Uh, Timothy didn't say, well, let me give it a try and see what happens. No, Timothy heard the truth, he believed the truth, and he gave his life to Christ because he is the truth. And as a result, Timothy was born again. He became a believer. His life was radically changed. I thank the Lord that he was radically changed as a young man. So many years of agony spared. So many of you came to Christ when you were older, and your greatest regret in life is just that. You came to life in Christ when you were older. Uh, I know Mike often says to me, why, Lord, did you wait so long to save my soul? So if you are young, and you decide, if you are young, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day where you need to turn to Christ. And I assure you, you will spare yourself great agonies, great pains, if you turn to Christ now. Timothy wisely did. He could not ignore the call of God any longer. What we have here is a sincere, true, saving faith to which Timothy then, of course, remained committed. Well, let me take a look at some characteristics of Timothy in the few minutes we have left. I want you to see what kind of a guy he was. And the reason I want you to see what kind of guy he was is because it sets an example for us. I don't want to just study Timothy for the sake of studying the man. No. We don't worship Timothy. No. We learn from him. And I want you to see what characteristics are in you, or better yet, are lacking in you. Are you anything like Timothy? It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Are you anything like Timothy? And here's the first one. Timothy was a very willing individual, very willing to serve God. And we see that in Acts chapter 16. I read it to you earlier. He had this very willing disposition. He was all in. He wanted to do whatever was, ne whatever was necessary and whatever was right in order to fulfill the purpose of God. He was even willing to be circumcised as a young adult. That, my friends, is a sacrifice. He was willing. Number two, he was physically frail. And I'm not suggesting you should be physically frail, but take a look at chapter 5, verse 23 in 1 Timothy. Chapter 5, verse 23 describes Timothy. It says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The point being here that in the day before medicine was uh, well developed, wine was used medicinally. And apparently Timothy, being frail, he had a stomach issue. And Paul says, you know what? Water is just not cutting it. Uh, you need something more potent. I think wine will help you. We don't know what kind of a guy he was in terms of stature. Was he a big guy? Was he a small guy? Was he a stout guy? We don't know what he looked like. We do know that he was physically frail. He was not the healthiest of people. And yet, 
he did not let his frailty keep him from serving God. He could have said, oh, my stomach hurts. I don't think I'm going to church today. <laughs> no, 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 no. He says, my stomach hurts. I'll have a glass of wine, but I got a job to do. And he did it. Notice number three. Personality-wise, he was timid. Now, again, I'm not asking you to be timid, but maybe you already are. Look at what we read in 1 Corinthians 16.10. It describes Timothy this way. When Timothy comes, Paul writes, it says, See that you put him at ease among you. In other words, I'm sending you Timothy, and he's nervous. He's afraid. Put him at ease. Make him feel at home. Don't treat him like you treated me. Put him at ease. Timothy struggled with fear and hesitation. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So you see, timid, yes, but also determined. He was outside of his realm of comfort, but he was determined to serve God. Four, Timothy could be trusted with great responsibilities. It was Timothy who was sent to Corinth to collect a monetary gift for the poor people in Jerusalem. Timothy. He is the one who's going to come back, and it was a long distance, especially back then, from Corinth all the way back to Jerusalem with a bag of gold. He was going to be trusted. This young man could have very well said, you know what, I'm supposed to go west. What if I go east instead? Who's going to stop me? But he didn't. Well, I could borrow a few coins from the bag. Nobody will know. In fact, it'll make the trip a little lighter if I spend it now. Nobody will know. But that's not Timothy. Timothy could be trusted, and he did deliver. He could be trusted with great responsibilities because of his character. And he's a young man. He's a young man. Number five, he's devoted. He's devoted to God, the Lord. He's devoted to his church. He's devoted to his friends. He's devoted to the task. And, you know, my wife read this quote to me uh, this week. It goes this way. A leader's role is to define reality and then give hope. There's truth there, isn't it? A leader's role is to define the reality we're facing and then give hope. And one guy commented, said, yes, create angst and then give hope. <laughs> you know, sometimes truth comes from the most um, poorest of sources. You know who said that? Napoleon Bonaparte. Here's a better quote for you from Augustine, the one whose mother was praying for him. No one can be a good bishop if he loves his title but not his task. No one can be a good servant of God in the church of God if you love your title more than you love your job. The point here, my friends, is that leadership anywhere, but especially in the household of God, requires devotion. 
Timothy was a man of devotion. You cannot lead a church if you are not content with being simply a servant. The task is far more important than the title. And Timothy was devoted to being that servant. Which leads me to the next one. Notice here his servant's heart. Which came first, his devotion or his servant's heart? I don't know, and I suppose it doesn't matter. But he certainly was a devoted individual, and he certainly was a man with a servant's heart. He willingly remained in Ephesus despite the difficulty he knew he was facing. The servant's heart. In fact, Paul refers to him in Romans 16.3, my fellow worker, not my employee, not my apprentice, but rather my worker, my servant, the servant's heart. Not everyone in Ephesus shared that same heart. If you go back and read, uh, well, chapter 3, 1 Timothy, verse, uh, verse 6, there Paul warned against taking on any recent convert, any recent believer, and making them into a pastor and elder in a church because of the danger of pride. And what was happening there is that people were taking on these leadership roles only to say, oh, look at me. I'm a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I do a lot of credentialing for the denomination. I, I, I do a lot of examination. I do this routinely. I've been doing it for 20 plus years and I can tell you this, many of these men are wonderful, humble servants, but some just want a title. I said, well, in, all, in all honesty, there's no glory here. Absolutely none. And standing here, it's a privilege, it's an honor, but there's no glory in the service of God in his church. My friends, if we're going to serve in God's house, it's because we have a servant's heart and not a big ego. And you notice here as well that he's obedient. I lost count. I don't know what number I'm on. But he, he, he was obedient. Acts chapter 16, verse 2. You see there that he was well spoken of by the fellow brothers and sisters of the early church. Uh, that is to say that he was obedient, he persevered in the faith. He continued following after Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse Timothy, verse 12, Paul writes this to him. It says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, love, in faith, and in purity. And, and Timothy did just that. He was obedient he did what he needed to do in order to live the Christian life properly, in order to be an example to everybody else, but also in order to honor God. He was obedient. And he was doctrinally sound. Ephesus was a church that had plenty of false teachers. They also had wrong teachers and wrong leaders. They had people who presumed that they knew what they were talking about. In fact, right there at the get-go, we'll look at it next week, beginning of verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, you see that there are false teachers. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul refers to these false teachers as irreverent people who are teaching silly myths. And yet they think they know what they're talking about. Some of your translations will refer to old wives' tales, silly myths. 
that they teach as if it was very deep and very important. But no, it's not. You're, you're simply twisting the word of God. You look wise, you sound wise, but really it's just old wives' tales. But Timothy had sound doctrine. He knew the word of God, and therefore he was able to teach the word of God. He was able to hear people teach and say, hold oh, on, that's not what the Bible says. How do I know? Because I know what's true. He had sound doctrine. And the Apostle Paul recognized that, and that's why he became the teacher, the pastor there. And lastly, he was a man of conviction, a man of true biblical conviction. Um, we have convictions, we have opinions. I'm a man of many opinions. If you talk to me, I readily tell you my opinions. But you know something? You can change my opinions very easily. Just give me the facts. And you can change my opinion on just about anything if you give me the facts. But you cannot change my convictions so readily. In order for you to change my convictions, you have to change me. You have to change my heart. That's the difference between an opinion and a conviction. Timothy was a man of conviction, not just mere opinion. And others in the church had convictions as well, but here's the problem. They had wrong convictions. You see, Timothy had sound doctrine, therefore he had proper convictions. We Not only do we need convictions, we need right convictions. We need true, proper convictions. Timothy was that guy. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes about those other people who had opinions and wrong convictions. And he says, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We need to be people of conviction. And not only that, they need to be right convictions. Timothy lived by godly convictions and he died because of those godly convictions. Now, in closing, let me just draw your attention to the last words that Paul writes there to Timothy. It says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, that one verse, it says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul usually does not say grace, peace, and mercy. Usually when he closes or introduces his letter, he says grace and peace. Here he throws mercy in as well. Grace, of course, means divine favor in light of sin. Peace means harmony of the mind and the heart, especially between you and God, between you and the world around you. But mercy is to be free from the misery of the consequences of sin. And here Paul says, Tim, Timmy, you're going to need mercy. The world you're living in Oh, you need grace, and you need peace, but you also need God's mercy. You need to be rescued from the misery of the sin that surrounds you, that emanates from your own heart, as well as the heart of those you shepherd in your church. And so Paul prays for him to have grace, mercy, and peace. If there's any way you could pray for me, likewise, that's how I pray for you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Pray that God's intervention will be clear in our lives together, that his mercy, his grace, and his peace would be evident. We serve the Lord best when we have all three. Grace, mercy, peace.
And so, my friends, there we have the characteristics of this young pastor named Timothy. And these are characteristics that I believe we should have for ourselves. Now, let me ask you this. Imagine this with me. Imagine a room full of people who have these same characteristics as Timothy. Imagine what God can do with a room filled of people who possess these characteristics. Imagine what God could do. And then I would ask you to begin committing yourself to being willing. And maybe you're frail, but you're still eager to serve him. Maybe you're timid, but you are determined to become a person who is trustworthy and devoted, a person with a servant's heart, one who is obedient to the truths of God, one who is doctrinally sound, and one who lives by godly conviction, not following every fad or whim or opinion or seeking your own pleasure. Nine characteristics. Let me ask you, which ones do you possess? Which ones are lacking? And to what degree? These are questions you need to answer. You know why? Because God is asking those questions of you. And one day, every single one of us are going to have to stand before God and answer. Who are we? And what kind of a life did we live? In fact, Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that, that one day we, as believers, will stand before God and God is going to see, examine us to see whether or not we lived a life that was good or worthless. Good or worthless? Now, most of us will say, well, I'm not living a dastardly life, an awful life. Well, good. Good. But is it worthwhile in the eyes of God? Is it good or was it worthless for the things of God? You need to answer that question. One day you will answer that question. My pastoral advice to you, begin answering today. And doing something about it while it still matters. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to be able to look at the life of others and learn from them. To be able to see what you have done in others. And pray, Lord, that you would do this in us. And may you be praised by how we live individually and together as your people. Amen.